Firstly, I'd just like to say thank you for joining us. We really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and talk with us today. So the aim of the project is to explore different types of intelligence. Um, intelligences that aren't human, including plants, animals and machines. We're looking at how these different types of living things and networks communicate, think, act and are connected. We hope to be inspired and to think differently about how we can make the world a better place by working together in the future. And that's sort of why we wanted to uh, pick your brain. So firstly, if you'd like to introduce yourself by telling me your name and what it is that you work closely with in the animal or plant world. Sure, so I'm Luisa Ruge and I'm a user-centered designer by training. And currently I'm doing a PhD in animal-computer interaction where my research focuses on designing canine-centric devices for mobility assistance dogs. Fabulous. And so how did you become interested in working in this particular field? So it's, it's a bit of a longer story, but about seven years ago, uh, I took a sabbatical from the corporate world and I realized that my interest and passion for animals had been something I had neglected as part of my professional development. So, but I also wanted to not lose my ability to create compelling product and service user experiences, which I had been doing. And I thought this could be something I could probably develop and apply on behalf of animals. So I began my transition into expanding the scope of users I work for to include animals by, by looking for animals who had established partnerships with humans and who I also like found really interesting and had a passion for. And that's how I ended up becoming a certified mobility assistance dog trainer. And since then, I've worked with all kinds of working and assistance dogs, including urban search and rescue dogs, diabetic alert dogs, and now, of course, again, mobility assistance dogs. Wow, that's such an interesting and important role. And so what sorts of environments do you work with dogs? So I have, through my PhD research, we have an established partnership with a, a charity that trains the dogs out of the UK, out of Banbury, and they're called Dogs for Good. And throughout the research, I've been developing prototypes of these canine-centric devices. So I go to the charity and either test them there with the dogs and kind of record how they react. But I've also worked with a few partnerships, so people that have mobility assistance dogs and they've been kind enough to welcome me into their homes. And I've also installed some prototypes there. Gosh, that's really, really cool. And so how is the research going? It's been going real well. Actually, the research part of my PhD is done, so now I'm just writing up. Um, it went on for about a little over a year, and uh, some really important lessons learned throughout. Uh, so just a couple of anecdotes. Um, there is my first prototype I developed for the dogs to use. I very much from a human-centric perspective. You know, when you when you tell another human you're giving them a prototype, I think they inherently handle it with care. Uh, this is not the case for dogs. So after about two weeks of building and making and designing, I went and installed the prototype and 10 seconds later, the dog had destroyed it. <laughs> and not by any fault of his own, he was just being a dog, but more so from my I think it was an error and a deep lesson I learned that um, you have to be 
You have to make sure your prototypes are resistant to any behavior the dog might have beyond the one you expect them to have when interacting with the prototype. But on the whole, and as a result of really honing in the design to respond to the dog's characteristics and capabilities as a user, from the charity, I've had feedback that in using the prototypes to train this one command, as opposed to it's a push command or a nudge command where the dogs are trained to a push in on an, an access button, the ones we, kind, we use to open motorized doors. Um, and the difference in training that with a standard button and my prototype has resulted in time savings from going, um, I believe it was, it took the dogs two to three days to learn the command with the regular access button. And in using my prototypes, they're picking the command up in hours. So yeah, that's a big relief that it actually worked. Gosh, that must be such a relief to know that all your hard work has paid off. Especially when you're having to create something that isn't for humans. You're having to adapt the way you think into a sort of non-human way. Yeah, it's been, I, not only has it been a, like an interesting transition to go through, it's also, it's interesting because it's a lot, it's an added layer of responsibility because in designing for an animal, I now become the interpreter for the animal throughout the whole design process, no, because there's never a point in time where the animal is like, hey, hey, let me tell you this, or there is no verbal feedback provided. So in doing so, it, it's interesting because the differences between the animal user and the human researcher are so stark and explicit that in a way they're top of mind all the time. So you're trying to the best of your abilities to interpret their needs accurately and concisely. And it has made this virtuous cycle appear where then I think back when I designed for humans and a lot of the times how much I assumed because I'm dealing with, you know, a species that's the same as mine. So it's almost like in designing for animals, I've learned to be more aware of what it is like to design for humans. And then it's also helped me understand what biases I might be coming into when I'm designing for animals. You know, every animal is an individual. And we, as humans tend, we love making categories and patterns. And I think we, with animals, we're not, we're even more so, we tend more so to develop categories for them. So sometimes, you know, if you hear of a news story and it's like elephants in Africa and you, in your mind, you have this, it's like elephants, like they're all this big clump. And when you're actually designing for animals, their individuality really shines through. And I think what you were saying in terms of how will this affect a certain profile or a certain type of customer or a certain type of user, um, my belief is that because we're just starting to do this for animals, their individual nature is really important to take into consideration when you're designing for them. And an example I can give you is, you know, of the dogs using the prototypes, some might be more extroverted than others, or some might be more willing to follow commands, some might be more food-driven than others. And it's really important to take 
these baselines in their nature and their personality, you could say, when analyzing their interactions with the prototypes because it might not mean that the prototype isn't doing its job well or the dog is not understanding what it has to do. They're just a more excitable dog by nature. So it's not necessarily, it's a bias, but a baseline of how that bias could come along because if you were to kind of get the numbers from their interactions without having that added nuance of their individual nature, I think your results would be incredibly skewed. Wow, that's really interesting. There's so many intercepting variables and factors to consider. Um, so you say you've mainly worked with dogs. Would you say that what you've learned can be transpired across the entire animal kingdom? Yes, I would I would think so. I mean, I, I do think every animal is an individual and that, that needs to be considered when you're, when you're designing things for them. And I also think that even though I had knowledge regarding dogs before coming into this, I've also had to, well, research and, and learn more about them as I design for them. So you do, as a designer, I also think it's your responsibility to know as much as you can about the species you're designing for to be able to use like your your cognitive abilities to try again to the best of your abilities because I think we'll make a lot of mistakes along the way to really understand the animal's perspective. Sure, yeah, yeah. So um what is it that you enjoy most about working um with animals in this field in particular? I enjoy Ah, I enjoy a lot of things, but I think one of the things that I enjoy the most is is being able to apply skills I had learned for humans towards animals, but then undergoing the process of, of adapting those methods based on the animal's needs. And um, I, I usually, I really like method and methodology in general. So building things that I think I can also then apply towards other animals or other situations is what I think I enjoy the most of the research and what I think is really valuable. So I guess that's kind of like um, the value of um, having an interdisciplinary skill and, and using that across across all fields. That's amazing. That's fab. So moving on, what, when you're working with the dogs in sort of like testing conditions and things like that, do you ever feel like there's a level of communication between you and the animals? So it depends because if I am, so in trying to set up a, a, a research setup, I usually I'm observing or recording the dog and either and their handler which can either be their trainer at the facility or their partner in the home environment. And my job is really not to intervene at all because I'm like a separate observer, almost like a fly on the wall watching the interaction. But then once or before actually I set up the study, I do take some time to familiarize myself with the dogs and, you know, just a kneel and come closer to them and let them be familiar with me so that me being there during that time is not affecting their their level of 
concentration or their level of security or confidence. Ah, so familiarizing yourself with the dog can kind of help to avoid skewing results um, and to kind of avoid anything out of the ordinary happening. Yeah, and making sure they know who I am and not just, you know, coming coming into scene without them knowing because I am trying to keep their conditions as normal as they usually are. So I am a foreign person in this setup, so I need to make sure that they're comfortable with me before, but then my interactions during the research are almost none because I want them to act like if I wasn't there. Yeah, I see. That makes perfect sense. So just going back to your research, um, can you kind of tell us what is the the main purpose and premise? Uh, What is the outcome of your research and the products that you intend to make and use with this research? So the reason I'll give you a little bit of context. So my thesis supervisor, Dr. Clara Mancini, she had started this work previously to me. So my PhD in a way was continuing the work of mobility assistance dogs and the devices and artifacts they interact with. And how we ended up choosing access control buttons and just smart controls in general is because out of the out of the many tasks these dogs carry out on behalf of their humans, a lot of them require them to interact with artifacts and environments that are not designed with them in mind as users. In fact, they're designed from a human-centric perspective. And this mismatch between the user as a dog and the artifact they're interacting with is the problem we're addressing. And in doing so, some of the commands, like the ones I mentioned, push and nudge, are ones where the dogs interact with, have active interactions with the devices. So what I mean by that is a big part of the dog's job is also to retrieve falling objects on behalf of their human partners. And this requires them to pick up anything from, you know, keys, purses, socks. But these are in a way um, intermediate interactions where the dog needs to pick this thing up with their mouth and bring it back to their human. But with devices, there really needs to be an active interaction because the dog has to come into contact with the button, press it to the point that it activates whatever it is it's activating, whether it be a motorized door or making a lamp turn on and off. And in that, there's an extra part of the interaction that's important for the dog to know, which is knowing that they activated whatever it is successfully so that they receive some form of feedback that then they know they carried out the command well. And a lot of the work in the research has been figuring out what best to use as feedback so that the dog can independently know that it activated the button and then the human handler might provide extra verbal feedback like a good dog, good job. But it's how much do you allow the dog to, not allow the dog, but enable the dog to understand for himself what's going on. Gosh, that's so fascinating. Um, And so can you tell us what that actually might look like? So it's actual, so the controls 
had visual and auditory feedback. So when you press the button to the extent that it actually activated what it needed to activate, it made a clicking sound. And then there is also around the controls push pad, which is, it's basically a cylinder. It's a small cylinder with a push pad right in the front. And when that push pad was pressed in, uh, a light, a rim of light came on around the button. And this was one of the really interesting learnings of the project was that the light feedback was actually not that useful for the dogs, but it was very useful for the human handlers because when the dog came into contact with the button, um, sometimes they might, you know, you might not see if the dog actually came into contact with the button. So the human would not know whether to give feedback or not because you really only want to say good dog when they actually carried out the task. So what ended up happening was that the visual light feedback, the humans used to know if the dog had activated the command, and the dogs would use the clicking sound of the control to know if they had activated the command. And so I assume that this um, particular piece of equipment isn't targeted at the visually impaired, um, because obviously not being able to see would kind of make it a little bit harder to, to process the whole thing in general, wouldn't it? Not for this research, and um, I think, I mean, that's an incredibly valid point, but another part, so another thing in, in designing for animals is the more specific you are, I think the more appropriate your end design will be. So because this was focused on mobility assistance dogs, so people with mobility-related disabilities, then you can get to that level of specificity. Now, to your point, if these controls were to be installed in the built environment for the general public that uses assistance dogs, so including icing dogs and maybe diabetic alert dogs, you'd have to kind of adjust those constraints to make sure that you're addressing the general public. So in a sense, it needs to be tailored to each particular need. Yeah. and. And it, you're right, it might, I think as, because this is so new, I, I truly believe that the more specific you can be to make sure that the result you have is actually improving the situation, the better. And then from there, from a very high level of specificity in the design, you can start making it more general and opening it up to other populations because yeah. I think if you do it the other way around, if you start general, then you actually might not be able to measure the consequences the design might be having. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfectly logical stance. It makes sense. So if you could just give us an example of um, a time where you might have seen two animals communicating, um, whether it be two dogs or uh, you know, animals from different species, do you have any examples that you could share with us? I was thinking about how to answer this question because I want to answer it maybe in two parts. So there's this um, there's this book called I had it here because I knew I was going to reference it. Let me just find it. It's called Communicating with Animals by Arthur Myers, and in this book, one of the things it says is that basically. All of nature is built out of the same building blocks. 
and that because of this, we inherently have the ability to communicate amongst nature. But with humans, uh, once language kicks in, it becomes such a strong part of the way we communicate that it kind of dampens our, our innate ability to communicate with nature. And by that, it doesn't mean that you go and have a conversation with a tree, but it does mean that we do have this ability to sense the world around us. And it makes this really nice example of little kids sometimes coming and saying, the dog said that. <laughs> and it, he argues that because at that age, language hasn't kicked in so strongly, you might actually, they might actually be telling the truth. So I wanted to include this because whether or not you think this is like bonkers or whatever, I think logically it does make sense that if we're all built of the same things, we should be able to communicate. Now, how you communicate is the question. So in going back to, the, to your question of seeing dogs or dogs and humans communicate, I think it happens all the time. And with dogs, you just have to go spend 20 minutes in a dog park and just sit and watch the dogs and you'll see them coming closer, figuring out if they're going to play or if they're not, if they like each other, if not. There's all these behaviors they're doing, whether it's a play bow, their ears, their tails, and it's happening. Now, what it actually means, I think we're still learning to figure out, but, but I think it happens all the time. Yeah, I think I agree, actually. Um, and so do you think dogs learn from humans? I, yes, I do, 100%. And um, I think dogs are really, they're a really interesting species, and it's part of the reason why I kind of chose this exploration into the animal world through them, because they've been our partners for about, I think it's like 12,000 years. And they are really well at adapting to our lifestyles. So... Can they learn from us? I think they learn from us all the time in observing us. Because if you have a dog, and I have had a dog in the past, although not right now, your dog is basically just checking you out all day. And they're like, they're attuned to your movements and what in your moods and your feelings. And they also sometimes imitate you. So I think the proof is that if you have a dog, I am sure you can come up with an example of a time when when you, the dog preempted your behavior in some way or knew you were feeling a certain way. So they're learning to react to us all the time. But I also think there's a new, there's actually this, it's not new, but it's a, it's a dog training kind of school of thought which is called Do As I Do, and I forget who started it. It's a woman. But the training is, is basically just do the action, and the dog will imitate you. So, so I think, yeah, I think they learn from us all the time as well. Mm, I think I agree. So we're kind of going to move on now to sort of like the artificial intelligence side of things. So um, my first question is, um, in what ways... Do you interact with AI? Um, this ranges from like Netflix to uh, Siri. So um, what ways do you communicate with um, artificial intelligence? I'd say that beyond, I guess, general consumer um, interactions, like you mentioned, I really don't that much. 
like the extent of the technology I use for my research right now is frame by frame video playback. It's pretty non techy. <laughs> That's really interesting. Um, could you maybe elaborate a little bit more on that? Uh, so the reason why so and this was also a learning curve within the research. So when I first, one of the first uh, studies was just recording dogs interacting with the regular access button, the kinds that have a, the disability icon and that you push to open a motorized door. And I had to then watch the videos and kind of record and annotate the dog's behavior and see what was going on. And when I watched the video at a regular speed, I was able to annotate just general behavior. So the dog approached if they were very explicit, like he sat down or he turned away. But I could see there's all these other very fast occurring and nuanced behaviors. So then I watched the video at half speed. And now I watch videos almost in between half speed and a quarter speed and frame by frame because dogs move very quickly and they have all these what are called naturally occurring communicative behaviors. So the way they wag their tail, the way they move their ears, where they're looking at, they sometimes get these stress lines in on their snouts. And all of these matter because that's the ways they're communicating with us. And if we don't record them, then we might, you know, be misinterpreting what what they're the state they're in or what they're trying to communicate. So it's a very, it's a time grueling process. <laughs> and, but it's, once you're done, it's, it's really interesting to kind of see all the variations of, of the behaviors you can watch in a 10 second video. Well, that really gives light to how important sort of micro movements and micro details are in the research process. That's really, really cool. Yeah. And that has also been a lot of what through the research I've learned. So, and I could have probably come to this with a more kind of tech forward approach. And there are companies out there that are using AI to help them analyze and record the dog's behavior. But from a personal standpoint, I really wanted to do it myself because to your point, I, I was hoping it would teach me and give me the knowledge to choose what behavior to to look at and I guess trust my my human gut a bit more and I started recording all sorts of behavior so it was a crazy excel sheet with everything the dog did and then I realized you know I'm gonna go crazy or I'm not gonna finish this in time because that's also a big constraint and then I started so it really forces you to make a very succinct research question. And one of the studies was actually about interpreting the dog's tail wagging behavior as uh, a reflection of their state. Like if they were anxious, confident, eh, happy, and just very few kind of emotional states. And based on the tail's height, the position they wagged it in, the angle they were wagging it in. And again, this was painstaking work. But in the end, there seemed to be a correlation between how the dog wagged their tail 
and their personality during their interactions. Gosh, so in reality, there is a huge benefit to the painstaking work. <laughs> so more generally, how do you feel about um, artificial intelligence and AI in the world today? So I think it's a very powerful tool and I think it can do a lot of good. But one thing, even though AI, you know, make in a way smart decisions on your behalf, the way the constraints you give it to make your de those decisions are really, really important. In a way, it's similar to, to the work in designing for animals in that it's newness, I think also really calls for us to be more cautious or, or on the side of caution. Because if you, if the constraints you give the AI by which they make your decisions are in a way out of our control, then you get the, the examples you have with AI having all these biases towards users that you didn't see it coming. That's what happens. And just yesterday, actually, I was listening to this podcast from the New York Times called The Rabbit Hole. And it's this guy that used to work at YouTube and they changed the algorithm to just increase viewing time. But one of the consequences was that, for example, if you were watching cat videos, then you just kept watching cat videos. But if you take that to, I believe he made the example of the protests in, in Egypt when they were first happening. And if you were watching the site of the protesters, then the algorithm just showed you more videos from their viewpoint, from the protesters. So then it, in the end, you will inform your point of view based on watching this a lot of the same. Yeah, I see that. You can kind of see how your uh, your opinion could be swayed with a lot of the same thing. Um, and you do see those algorithms sort of catching what you've been speaking about with friends or what you watched last night. So there is that sense of um, being listened to. And um, yeah, are we okay with that? And then so, so I guess with AI, what I think we and we're, I also think as humans, we're not really good at this. But whatever constraints you give them, the algorithm, you really need to sit down and think through the secondary or tertiary or quaternary or whatever comes after that sort of consequences that can come out of those constraints. So it's not only that, like, if I like cat videos, then I, I only get cat videos, right? So my point of view is just informed by that. But then the moment I get a dog video, you know, humans also don't necessarily like change or things that are different. It takes us a bit of time to adapt. So if you've been getting the same, not only is your point of view informed by sameness, when you're given something different, the impact of that, I think is, is more so than if you were given varied content. Because all of a sudden, it's like, what dogs? No, they're not like cats at all. This is totally different. No. And, and no, and it's a reactive thing. And it's not like, oh, okay, let's see what these guys are up to. Not at all. It'll be like, no, 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 I just want more cats. <laughs> so with that in mind, um, what sorts of technologies do you find useful in your daily life? Like, what couldn't you live without? I, well, right now, especially with the coronavirus, if we did not have the internet, <laughs> I think this would have been an incredibly different experience. I think our world economy would have just collapsed. So right now I am very thankful for the power of the internet. 
Um, I use it a lot. AI, you know, past Netflix, I don't really have, I don't use Siri or um, Alexa. I did have an Alexa, but I, I was just using it as a speaker. And then I was like, why do I have this thing recording all my stuff? So I guess in general, I'm not, it's not, I'm not a heavy tech user, but I am a big believer in the value of technology when applied well. Sure, I totally agree with you. Um, I think that makes perfect sense. So um, this is probably my favourite question that I like to ask, um, and I have asked during these podcast interviews. Um, so if dogs could create a piece of technology that would help them be understood um, and that would benefit them, um, what do you think they would create and who do you think they would use as their sort of dream team to create the said piece of technology? It, so I, I would think I have two answers for this. So one is, and there are some companies already doing this, but I think when it comes to dog training, there is a, there's a part of the human carrying out the training that's really important. But that'll I'll answer that with my second question. But I would my assumption is that a dog would be preferred to be trained by a robot and not a human. And why I say they would have this preference is because training requires almost like a hundred percent consistency. Because in as much as I talked about how many behaviors you can see a dog carrying out in 10 seconds, the same goes for us. We move, we have glances, we have expressions, and the dogs are picking up all of these. And if they're inconsistent and we're trying to train a dog to do something, it usually throws them off. So if you have a robot that is, you know, 100% consistent, they always carry out the action in the same way, I think that would help dogs learn quicker. And I also think that sometimes if the dog doesn't get it, we as humans get frustrated and a robot wouldn't. He would happily do the same thing a hundred times or 10 times and there would not be any change in it. So that is one thing I think dogs might might do. And like I said, there are companies that have um, dog train robotic dog training devices out there. But I also think that I'm not then saying you should completely extract the human from the equation because I think the human adds a lot of value in terms of husbandry and caretaking and that should be part of it too. So that's one thing I think they would make. And then the other thing I think they would make is that um, that you know our partnerships with dogs about you know be historically have been very active partnerships that happen outdoors. So they were hunting dogs, they were herding dogs, but they required of uh, the interaction between humans and dogs to, to be very involved in a way. And then we decided to move into cities. We migrated to urban environments. Our living spaces got smaller. We don't have that many ac like parks or access to the outdoors or it's more reduced. And now we decided that our dogs are companions. And we leave them at home for hours. We come back, we walk them, you know, we try to the best of our abilities again to give them a good life, but we've changed the way we're interacting with them a lot. And 
I think there's a lot of products in the market right now that are trying to overcome this change for the dogs and giving them the ability to communicate with us remotely or the ability to use digital games. And although I think there might be something there, if a dog could just come up with something, I think they would come up with a technology that forces us to interact with them as involved as we were when we were outside hunting and herding. Because I think what they really value is the actual human getting down on their feet and like playing with them and fetching a ball with them and just really actively interacting with them. Yeah, I think I second that. And I think actually getting back to basics with them would actually be really lovely. Um, We kind of, we've robotized our relationships with with creatures especially pets and yeah I think that's actually a really good response so thank you and actually thinking about them being trained by robots who have more tolerance higher thresholds more resilience um you know they don't get tired like we do um I can see how that would make more sense in and be more effective in um training them and getting good results quicker and then but and that's where AI could really come in because and I, it's not binary, you know, it's not full robot or only human, because I do think that the, the other value a human brings is to adapt the training if the dog isn't getting it, you know? So that's also, if you have the robot doing it and the dog isn't getting it, but the robot is just repeating the same thing, you're also at a loss. So I think a combination of the two would be really almost like the trainer could program the robot based on what the dog needs. And just work to work to the trainers and the robot strengths in favor of the dog. Well, so I guess you've got your next project already and prepared then. Um, thank you so much, Louisa, for sitting and talking with us. And we've really enjoyed it. And it's been very informative. Um, so in summation, would you just like to tell us what you've got planned next? Um, or is there anything else that you'd like to share with us before we round up? So I worked in industry for about... 13 years before I did this PhD. And I I do think that in returning to industry, I'll be able to apply what I've learned and really change the way we we design for animals. So my hope is to find a job, whether it's with a, a pet company or or even a pharmaceutical company or a company that produces a product or a service for an animal that I can then help make sure that the way they're going about that is more animal centric than historically how we've gone about it, which is more human centric. Well, that sounds really fantastic. And we wish you all the best of luck in your future studies and in your future career. Um, We're really grateful that you've spent so much time with us talking about your research and what it is that you do. And it's very, very interesting and extremely fascinating. So thank you so much for joining us, Luisa Ruhe. Have a wonderful day.